0: 1 through 22, 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had twelve foundations, and the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx the sixth carnelian the seventh chrysolite the eighth Beryl, the ninth topaz the tenth chrysoprase the 11th jacinth the 12th amethyst the 12 gates are 12 pearls each individual gate was made of a single pearl the main street of the city was pure gold transparent as glass i did not see a temple in it because the lord god the almighty and the lamb are its temple The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does What is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever.
1: Well, this is one of those days when you wonder as a preacher, would it be better to just leave it here and fall down on our faces and worship God after the hearing of his word being read? It's such a magnificent passage. And I remember well the day that I was installed for the first time as a senior pastor. We had a service and Ray Ortland Jr. preached at the service and his sermon was stirring. It was on 1 Corinthians 1 about preaching Christ and him crucified But it was his final words that have stuck with me to this day, and I can't forget them. He looked me straight in the eye and he said, David, think often of heaven. And with that, he sat down. And I've been pondering that ever since. Think often of heaven. How do you do that? How do you think often of a world to which you've never been? What do you think of when you think of heaven? Not everyone likes to think of heaven. An Anglican vicar, who should have known better, was asked by a colleague what he expected after death, and he replied, Well, if it comes to that, I suppose I shall enter into eternal bliss, but I really wish you wouldn't bring up such depressing subjects. For many people... Heaven has little appeal. I don't like the sound of it. They're in no hurry to get there. But what about the believers in the first century who were hearing these words of the book of Revelation for the first time as they went through the political oppression of the Roman Empire and the social ostracism of being followers of Jesus? Their livelihoods were in jeopardy. Their reputations were being maligned. They were experiencing, some of them, imprisonment, torture, even the loss of their own lives. What was it like for them to hear these words from the book of Revelation that Jesus gave to John, his apostles, so that he could write it down and have it read to the churches? He intended these words that we've been in throughout this fall to enable these believers in the first century to patiently endure through all the trials and tribulations they'd experience in this world, and Jesus gave these words for us too in the 21st century and all who wait for his coming so that we will patiently endure as well. It's in the last 15 chapters as we've gone through this book, we've seen all kinds of terrifying and dreadful things. Visions of smoke, visions of blood, plagues poured out on the earth, earthquakes, bulls of wrath. But now at last these terrifying realities are fading and the clear and clean atmosphere of the world that is coming is brought into full view so that we can see it and feel it and taste it and touch it and think often of it. These chapters are here to help us think often of heaven, to kindle our imagination, to cultivate our longing, to captivate our vision by showing us what we have to look forward to, believers. For those who believe in Jesus, heaven is supremely desirable. The Bible says that if you are in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven, That means that you're homesick for a world that you've never been to yet. Our hearts are filled with longings that nothing in this world can satisfy. C.S. Lewis put it famously, and if you've seen an email from Brandon Stern, you've seen this on his signature line. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Lewis also said, heaven is that remote music that we are born remembering. I love that that thought. We're born with music in our minds, a memory from a world that we've not been to yet, but to which our hearts ache and long to be. What I want to do this morning is highlight four longings that nothing in this world can satisfy. And I want to show you how this vision in Revelation 21 and 22 points us to a whole new world where all our longings will be fulfilled. And we need this vision so that we will keep on patiently enduring, eagerly expecting, waiting, and thinking often of heaven as we wait. So four longings... That nothing in this present world can satisfy, but which the world to come will satisfy. Longing number one. We long for this world we live in to be unpolluted and pristine. And that's what verse one is pointing us toward. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, it might sound strange to read about a new heaven, but remember what we read back in chapter 12? There was a war that broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon and his angels. That was going on in heaven, a rebellion there. And we know there's been a rebellion on earth. We know that's been going on ever since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. And we know that this earth is suffering because of our rebellion as humanity, the crowning jewel of God's creation, made in his image, revolted against our creator, and our mutiny has brought misery to the whole creation. Romans 8 says that the whole creation is groaning like in labor pains, longing to be set free from its bondage to decay. All of creation is groaning for what verse 1 of chapter 21 is proclaiming. Now, Colin Smith said that the Bible story is like a string of pearls, a long Barbara Bush kind of string of pearls. And if you think about that string of pearls adorned around a woman's neck, it falls and rises so that the first and the last pearl string together next to each other with just a clasp holding them together. But if the clasp is undone, what happens? The necklace is stretched out, and the first pearl and the last pearl seem really far apart. But join them by the clasp, and they're brought closely together. And that's what's happening here in Revelation 21. Genesis 1.1 seems like a long ways from Revelation 21.1. But clasped together by the life, death, resurrection, and return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will see a very close connection between the beginning of the Bible and the ending of the Bible. The Bible begins with what words in Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now, here we are at the grand finale of the Bible, and what do we see? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You see how the beginning of the story and the end of the story are coming together? And what's the clasp that holds them together? Jesus the Christ. And there are two words for new that could have been used here in verse 1. One word in Greek means something that's qualitatively new, new in kind, The other word means something new has replaced something old. Someone I read put it like this. Suppose two women are each married to a husband, a different husband. They each have their own, but both their husbands are addicted to gambling. And the first woman encourages her husband to go to gambling Gamblers Anonymous. And through this, he overcomes his addiction. The second woman is fed up with her husband's gambling. She divorces her husband, and she marries another man. Both women can say, I am married to a new man. But they mean very different things by new. In Greek, the first woman would use the word kainos for the same husband who's been renewed. He's a new man now. And in Greek the second woman would use the word neos for the husband who has replaced her first one. So which word do you think the New Testament uses to describe the new heaven and the new earth? It's that first word, kainos. And that's good news. It's the same heaven and the same earth but it's been renewed. That means God's not going to throw out this world into a trash heap. This good world that he created is, is going to pass away. It's going to perish, we see. It had passed away, but just like the body of Jesus passed away and died and was buried, but then was resurrected in glory, so is this earth. It is going to be transformed. It is going to be renewed. It is going to be saved. It is going to be rescued. The earth is going to be resurrected and renewed. Right now, God's good earth is polluted by our grotesque rebellion. It's like someone came and and took a spray can and, and spray painted graffiti all over the Mona Lisa. It's been vandalized. It's been desecrated. The beauty of this earth has been polluted by the ugliness of our sin. But one day, this earth is going to be renewed. And heaven and earth that are now separated, there's a gap, there's a distance. They're going to be made one. They're going to be brought together. There's not going to be a division anymore. We're not going to need to pray anymore Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven because God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So don't get me wrong. I do want to go to heaven when I die. And I want you to go to heaven when you die, if you die before Christ returns. But that is not the ultimate goal of the gospel. Brett Davis puts it like this. The vision we see in Revelation is not of earth being evacuated to heaven. It's about earth being invaded by heaven. The gospel is ultimately about God coming down to earth to dwell with us here in a resurrected and renewed and restored creation. And we will be raised bodily to enjoy that new creation with him in glorified bodies just like Jesus has. And if you think about it, this is the movement that we see all throughout the Bible. What happened in the Garden of Eden? God came down, and he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. What happened in the tabernacle as the Israelites went through the wilderness to the promised land? God's presence came down and dwelt among them. What happened in the temple that Solomon built in 1 Kings chapter 8? God's presence came down and filled that temple with his glory. What happened in the incarnation? The Word, the eternal Word, became flesh, human, and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us, and we beheld his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What happened after the crucifixion? He was buried, but then he was raised, and he walked among us for 40 days. And what will happen when he comes again? He will return to this earth, not just for a temporary visit, but he's going to come back and make all things new, a new creation. That's what we're looking forward to. And that's what we read in verses 5 and 6. Look at it. He who was seated on the throne with all power and authority said, Behold, I like that word, pay attention. Look, don't miss this. I am making all things, all things new. Not all new things, all things new. And he said also, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So it it should be bringing back to our minds memories of Genesis chapter one. What happened? God said, let there be light And it was done. There was light. Everything appeared at the word of God. So it is in the new creation. He who sits on the throne declares, let it be done, and it is done. He is the Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the originator of all creation. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. And he is the Omega, the the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He is the goal, the end, the renewer of all creation. All things find their fulfillment in him. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of recreation. And Isaac Watts, he understood this. He got it, that this creation, this earth, is going to be purified and made pristine when Jesus comes again. That's why he included these verses in his great Advent hymn. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while, what? Fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains. Repeat the sounding joy, because this created world's going to be renewed. And so no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Why? Because he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And we long for this, don't we? At its best, isn't this what the environmentalists are looking for? Now, we go wrong when we turn this earth into an object of worship. But it's not wrong to want to see this earth be purified, freed from its pollution, freed from its corruption. It's not wrong to want to live on this earth forever. We are earthlings. We were made to live here. So when you look out at the Grand Canyon and you see all that magnificence, there's something in your heart that says, oh, I was made to look at this forever. And wintertime, which I know I strangely love, when you see a forest that's freshly covered with pure white snow, it's all its pristine beauty, there's something in your heart that says, oh, that this would last forever forever. And when you try to get away from winter and go to the Caribbean in February and swim in those emerald waters and you look at the beauty of all that, you you long for this world to be made new, and it will be. It will be purified. It will be made pristine. It will be made fit for God to dwell here with man forever. That's a longing that's in our hearts that only the world to come will be able to satisfy, but it will be satisfied. The second longing is this. We long, oh, do we long, to be freed from all the inward and outward effects of sin. And friends, we have never experienced a day or even a moment when we've been freed from sin and the curse and all its effects. My friend Mike Bulmore said it's like the old Claritin commercials. Back in 2011, they'd use the song, I can see clearly now I'm free again. And, and they'd give you the picture first without Claritin where everything is all foggy and, and just like a, you know, a, a lens of, of filth over everything. And then they'd take the Claritin and whew, everything became crystal clear. And our experience right now is the pre-Claritin experience. We have no idea how deeply our world and our inner experience of self has been affected by sin. We can't imagine what a difference it will make to have the fog and the distortion of sin removed. But it will be. Look at verse 2 of chapter 21. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared... As a bride adorned for her husband. (laughs) Throughout the story of the Bible, Jerusalem has been stained by her sin. In the Old Testament, the prophets were sent to her and she rejected the prophets. and, And finally, God disciplined her by sending her off into exile in Babylon, where she lived in like refugee camps outside that city. And eventually they returned to the city of Jerusalem, but it was still so polluted, so corrupted by sin, and John knew it. He had been there with Jesus when Jesus denounced the city for stoning her prophets and rejecting those God sent to her. He would have remembered how our Lord wept over that city and said, oh, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, he was there when Jesus was driven outside the walls of that city and nailed to a cross and was lifted up to die. And John knew, as did the readers of this book in the first century, how in 70 A.D., the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem was invaded by the Romans and, and laid to ruin. So what a wonder. It must have been to John and to the believers in the first century to hear these words, New Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It must have caused hope to rise in their hearts. And look at how the new Jerusalem is described like a what? Bride adorned for her husband. Pure, unblemished, spotless, brilliant, freed from every trace of sin and shame. What will that be like? To not have a spot of sin or a lingering sense of shame in your conscience or even in your consciousness. To not be aware of sin's effects any longer. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine what it will be like to not have any accusation lingering in your mind, in your soul? No more sense of condemnation dragging around with you. No more fear. No more doubt. No more anxiety. No more lust. Can you imagine what it will be like to go a whole day and realize wait a minute, I've never been tempted this whole day. All my thoughts have been pure. All my words have been beautiful and a blessing. All my actions have been faithful and obedient and honest and loving and true. Can you imagine what it will be like to have Jesus meet you at the altar and to look at you in the eye and to say to you, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. A radiant bride without spot or blemish or any such thing. Imagine it. That's what we have to look forward to. Not only will the internal effects of sin be erased, so will all the external effects of sin be eradicated. Back in verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, the sea was no more. And I, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm kind of like, oh. That's maybe one thing about the new creation I'm not looking forward to. I love seeing big bodies of water. And thankfully, I can, I can tell you, I don't think that this is meant to be taken literally. This is a symbol here. It doesn't mean that, that the new creation isn't going to have any beautiful bodies of water. Instead, in, in the Bible, in the first century, the sea represented what is ominous, what is frightening, even dangerous, just like the night does. I love the nighttime. I love bonfires. I love fireflies. I love looking out at the stars in the sky at night. But here's what I don't love. I don't love walking through an inner city where there's maybe predators and criminals lurking with guns and knives and having the electricity cut and all the lights go out. And to realize I'm alone and I'm lost in the middle of the night, that's scary. And so when it says in verse 25 that the gates will never need to be closed, we'll never need to lock our doors because it will never be night there, that's symbolic language. It's saying there's not going to be anything dangerous, nothing ominous, nothing frightening in the new creation. And that's because verse 27 says nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. We can trust all our neighbors. And then verse 3 of chapter 22 brings it all to a climax where it says there will no longer be any curse reminding us of what happened in the Garden of Eden when God put a curse upon the serpent and everything sin touched. It's saying that in the new creation, sin's stranglehold on humanity and on creation itself is going to be broken because Jesus has come under the curse so that we who believe in all creation with us can experience God's blessing flowing far as the curse is found. What is it going to be like to live in this world? that's freed from all the internal and external effects of sin. Well, there's a great summary in verse 4 of chapter 21. Don't you love these words? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Everything. Everything associated with this fallen world. Everything that brings sadness and grief and sorrow and pain, it will be gone, passed away. Big pharmaceutical companies out of business. No more hip replacements, knee replacements, chiropractors, physical therapists, psychotherapists. There's no more work left for them to do. Hospitals, funeral homes shut down. Why? Because death shall be no more. And all the tears and all the sorrow and all the grief that follows in death's shadow will be eradicated. All the inward and outward effects of sin vanished. And you know what? For the first time ever, you will wake up and you will realize, I am fully alive. I'm living now the, the more abundant life that God came to give. And this is pictured beautifully in chapter 22. These verses bring us back to Eden, but point us forward to a world that's even better than Eden. Then the angels show me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, just like the river flowed through Eden. Only now, Eden has grown immensely. Now it's a beautiful garden city. And that river is flowing through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river is the tree of life that they weren't able to eat before. And it's got 12 kinds of fruit. It's never going to go dead during the winter or dormant. It's going to yield its fruit each month. And the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. And all these healing mercies will come from the throne of God and of the Lamb in verse 3, who's in the center of the city like a river of life perpetually and eternally sustaining the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem with the eternal life that is in Jesus himself. Everything that sin has broken will be mended. Everything that sin has wounded will be made whole. Everything that sin has hurt will be healed. That's what we have to look forward to. Can you imagine what it will be like to finally and fully be freed from all the effects of sin on the inside and on the outside. With all the ransom, church of God to be saved to sin no more. That's what heaven will be to me and to all who believe in Jesus. Think often of this. Then there's a third longing that we have in our hearts that nothing in this world can ultimately satisfy, but that God will in the new creation. It's this. We long to live in a safe and happy, and I would add, holy community. We long for this. I mean, what do you look for when you're buying a new home? What do all the realtors say? The three great requirements for a house purchase are what? Location, location, location. You're looking for a certain zip code. You want to know what that community is like. What are the amenities in that area? And lots of people are moving out of Illinois looking for better zip codes. Well, let me tell you what your new address forever in the new creation is going to be. It's, you're, you're going to live in New Jerusalem, NC. And I'm not talking about North Carolina. New Jerusalem, new creation, and the zip code's gonna be 77777. Perfect in every way. What will this city be like? Well, in verse nine, one of the seven angels who had seven bowls filled with wrath in previous chapters now gets a better job. <laughs> he says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he describes what happens next in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. John gets this vision of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God. And I love the way he just describes it at the beginning of verse 11. Arrayed with God's glory. Having the glory of God shining forth from it. And notice two times now we've heard this mixing of metaphors between a city, New Jerusalem, and a bride adorned for her husband. It's it's God's way of saying both that there's room for everyone, a multitude that no one can number, but that each and every one within this city is going to be loved and adored by him the way a bride is by her husband. No one's going to feel left out. No one's going to feel like they're not paid attention to. They're going to be loved with an everlasting love and a living, loving, lasting union with Christ himself. And we need to recognize that this whole wonderful future is not something we can create. It's not something we can bring about. It comes to us from heaven as a gift from God himself. We must wait for this. And then we get this Beautiful picture, this symbolic picture of the new Jerusalem. Verse 11, her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone clear as crystal. And then we get this tour of our new community. And notice some of its magnificent features. In verses 12 and 13, we see a massive high wall. What does that signify? Protection. Protection. Protection then there's 12 angels around that wall and then there's the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on the gates of that city signifying the story of God's redemption through the old covenant. How do you get into this city? You get in by entering through the story of God that begins in Genesis and then goes through Abraham and his descendants in the old covenant and finds its fulfillment in Jesus And then later on in verse 21, we see the splendor of these gates as each of the 12 gates are made of 12 pearls, each individual gate made of a single pearl. It's hard to even imagine what that's like, but beautiful, splendid. Then we see its foundations in verse 14, and again, there's 12 of them, 12 foundations, each bearing the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What is this showing us? The unity between Old Covenant believers and New Covenant believers. There's not two peoples of God, there's one people of God. And this city is built on the foundation of Jesus and his apostles. So you get into it by believing in the gospel that that Jesus came to bring And this foundation is strong and precious. Notice in verses 19 and 20, Joel did a good job reading all these different kinds of of precious jewels. These are the foundation walls of your new address. And the streets made of gold, imagine that. What a a place you're destined to live in. You, You can handle a little bit of suffering in this life if this is where it's heading, can't you? And we see its enormity, the enormity of of our new city in verses 15 and 16. It's vast, 12,000 stadia is its length and its width. How big is that? That's about 1,400 miles. How big is that? Well, think of the distance from Kansas City to San Francisco. Ever done that drive? A long drive, that's 1,400 miles in one direction. And then, think of the distance from the southern tip of Texas all the way up to Canada. That's another 1,400 miles. That's how big this new Jerusalem is being described here. But there's something more. Not only is its length 1,400 miles and its width 1,400 miles, it's height. Height is 1,400 miles high. This takes us into outer space. How high is Mount Everest? As someone said, if you put Mount Everest inside this cube, it would look like an insignificant pimple. It's not even 5.5 miles tall. So there's an entire world inside this cube. And that points to its glory. You know, the point of these dimensions... It's to show us that the whole earth is going to be filled with God's glory. The significance of these dimensions would have been immediately recognizable by John. He would have remembered how when Solomon built the temple in the Old Testament, the ark was brought into the most holy place. And what did they say? That that most holy place had to be a perfect cube, 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, 30 feet high. That's in 1 Kings 6. But what a difference we find here in Revelation. I love the way Colin Smith puts it. The old Jerusalem had a holy place where the presence of God came down. The new Jerusalem is a holy place where God's presence will remain. In the old Jerusalem, one room was filled with his glory. In the new Jerusalem, the whole city will be filled With his glory. That's why we read in verse 22. I saw no temple in this city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And there's no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light. And the Lamb is its lamp. This whole place has become holy. And there's room for every nation under heaven. All the nations will walk by its light. Verse 24. All the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Finally, the United Nations will live in the light of the risen Lamb. Not just getting along with one another but dwelling together in a happy, healthy, holy community. And the nations will be glad to a degree we cannot imagine. The diversity of cultures with all their ethnic traditions and foods and skills will be brought into the new Jerusalem. And everything that has divided us is going to be healed as the river that flows through and nourishes and the tree of life that is there brings brings fruit and heals the nations in verse 2. And the main reason this whole community will be united in happiness and holiness is because of the one who sits on the throne, who dwells in their midst. Verse 3 of chapter 22, The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. It's as we're together looking to Jesus that all the peoples of this earth become one. And not only are we going to get a glimpse of him just once in a while, we're going to gaze upon the king in his beauty and we're going to see him face to face, verse 4 says, and his name will be on our foreheads. Without any restriction, we will know him and experience communion with him like we've never known before. And as we commune with him, We will have sweet and happy and holy fellowship with one another. St. Augustine said, All of us who will enjoy God in heaven will also be greatly enjoying each other in him. That's the new community we have to look forward to. and It's all because God will be dwelling with us and we will be living with him as his people. Don't you long to live in a world like this? a world that is pure and unpolluted and pristine, freed from all the inner and outward effects of sin, a world, a city that is unified, where all its inhabitants are safe and secure, happy forever because they're holy, living in the presence of God himself, seeing him face to face. There's only one thing that could rob our enjoyment of this. Only one thing that could leave us with a lingering doubt, and it's the question, could it be taken away? I mean, that's what happened to Adam and Eve. They lived in a garden paradise, but they sinned. How can we know it won't happen again? This brings us to the last longing that nothing in this world can satisfy, but heaven will. And it's this, we long for all of this to last forever. That's why some of my favorite words in the Bible are verse 1 the sea was no more. Verse 4 death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain, no more. Chapter 22 verse 3 no longer will there be any curse. Verse 5 night will be no more. And then the best words of all at the end of verse 5 and they will reign forever. And ever why do we add and ever to forever does it really need to be there yeah it does because we just can't get our minds around this can we forever and ever and ever and ever we can't grasp it but god has put it into our hearts he has put eternity into our hearts in the words of Mike Bullmore, he has made us for forever, and he has made forever for us. You know what it's like when December 26th rolls around. Oh, Christmas is over. Kind of a little bit of sadness. Or you're, in, you're on a vacation and enjoying it so much and you look at the calendar, you realize I only have two days left. Only one day left. I remember what it was like for me. You know, Kate had her big bow with cancer in 2010, and she survived, and I was so grateful that my wife was still with me. But for me, the hardest year actually was 2011, because every day, and sometimes several times a day, I found myself wrestling with worry and fear because the doctor said, we didn't get all the margins and we're going to have to monitor this closely. And I kept wondering, will it come back? Will, will this just be a temporary reprieve? And the good news of the new creation is that you're never going to need to worry about this marriage coming to an end. You're never going to need to worry about this joy having its final moment. is going to go on forever and ever and ever. And the only thing you need to be asking now is, how do I get into this? How? Because if you look, you'll see there's people on the outside. In verse 8, they're described as cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. And I look at that and I think, well, I qualify. I qualify to be on the outside but not on the inside. And how about you? What's the way in? It's through the Lamb who was slain to ransom people for God from every language and tribe and nation. And there's a book of life that he has where he records in the indelible ink of his blood the names of every person chosen from before the foundation of the world to believe in him. And all those who have received his free invitation, I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. That's all that's required of you is thirst. Thirst to be forgiven. Thirst to be cleansed. Thirst to be made new. And Jesus says, I will freely give. What a tragedy it would be to not respond to his invitation. I read the true story of a lady named Ruth Anna Metzger, who was a professional singer accustomed to singing often at important occasions. And she was invited to sing at the wedding of someone who was very, very wealthy in Seattle. And she did it, and the reception was at the Columbia Towers, the the highest structure in the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest. And she was really looking forward to the reception. And she showed up as, as you do at these fancy receptions. There were two stories, and uh, you know, at the top of the tower, and they waited in the lower level, you know, eating shrimp and all those little things that they bring around until the bride and the groom showed up. And finally, the wedding party came and they cut the ribbon that was uh, guarding the spiral staircase up to the top level of the tower. And the bride and the groom and the wedding party all made their way toward where the the wedding banquet was going to be, and everyone else followed. And as you got up to the top, there was a man dressed in a tuxedo with a very fancy book, and you had to give him your name. And she got to the, the man. He said, What's your name? Ruthanna Metzger. He scrolled through the book, looking for the, through the M's. He said, I'm sorry, I don't see your name here. Could you spell it for me? She spells it out. Still, I'm sorry. Your name's not in here. She said, but I, I sang at the wedding. I know I'm invited. I know I'm supposed to be here. I'm sorry, ma'am. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done if your name's not in the book, you can't come in. And she was tempted to yell and scream to the bride and groom, hey, I'm here, and they're not letting me in, but there was so much going on. She didn't want to distract them. And so the man said to one of the ushers, come on over here. Please escort this couple to the service elevator. They went past the fancy foods, the beautiful orchestra, to a little elevator that took them straight down to the parking garage where they got into their car and drove away from that wedding feast in silence. Finally, her husband looked at her and said, Sweetheart, what happened? And she realized, in all the busyness, in all the distraction of getting ready to sing at this wedding, I never RSVP'd. I never responded to the invitation. And she started crying. Not because she had just missed one of the most splendid feasts she would ever enjoy in her lifetime, but because she realized afresh what it would be like for many of her friends and loved ones standing at the threshold of heaven, at the gates of the new creation, only to realize that in all their busyness, In all their distractions, in all their ways of being in love with this present world, they never responded to the invitation Come, all who are thirsty, and I will give you to drink freely of the water of life. She wept tears of sadness for her friends and tears of joy at the recognition that by the grace of God, she had responded to God's invitation. And she would be welcomed in to this glorious future. Have you? Have you responded? Doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. There's only one way in. It's through the blood of the Lamb of God who was slain for everyone who believes in him. Let's bow before him and pray.